First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse number 1, begins this way. For yourselves, brethren, know that our entrance in unto you, that it was not in vain. But even after that we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as you know, at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile, but as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, which trieth our hearts. For neither at any time use we flattering words, as ye know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness. Nor of men sought we glory, neither of you nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you, not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because you were dear unto us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and travail, for laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you, we preached unto you the gospel of God. Ye are witnesses, and God also, how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father doth his children, that ye should walk worthy of God, who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory." Now, I would remind you that as we've been studying through uh, the book of 1 Thessalonians, we have noted that there's a theme that is woven throughout 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and it is the second coming of the Lord. I like what one commentator said about it, describing the overview of uh, the books of 1 and 2 Thessalonians. He said that 1 Thessalonians is occupied with the rapture of the church, and 2 Thessalonians is occupied with the rupture of the world. Uh, we talked at great length last week about how that the second coming of the Lord Jesus uh, has two parts to it. It has the rapture of the church when uh, the bride of Christ, the New Testament church, will be caught up uh, by the Lord. He'll come and He won't come to this earth. He'll come in the clouds and gather His bride unto Himself. Then the Bible describes a seven-year tribulation period. And we'll talk about that at length. But it, it closes with the visible return of the Lord Jesus, not to the clouds, but to the earth. He'll come in power and in glory. It will not be a secreting away of the church. It will not be something that is only exposed to the eyes of those that believe, but rather it'll be something that every eye will see. The Bible says of Israel as a nation that they'll look on Him whom they pierce, and every eye will see. It says it's going to be like lightning that goes from the east to the west, is visible and apparent to every single person. And so making that distinction is paramount to understanding really a great portion of the Word of God. If you don't understand that there are those two events, and that though they are deeply connected, though there are times they are spoken of in the same breath, they are indeed distinct events that take place. And the Word of God details uh, greatly uh, that timeline and what is going to take place. Now, with that in mind, looking at the book of 1 Thessalonians and, and the impact of this truth, uh, we have had this theme in mind, uh, becoming a second coming church. One of the things I love about the books of First and Second Thessalonians is that Paul details for us how that this truth, this theological reality of the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ is something that permeates and affects and shapes everything that the believer should be doing. In other words, it's not just a point on our statement of faith. I mean, certainly it should be something that we are boldly ready and willing and anxious to share with others, that truth. 
But it is not merely something in a statement of faith, just something, a point of dogma that was, oh yeah, yeah, I believe that, uh, yeah, I subscribe to that, yeah, I affirm that. But rather it is to be something that saturates everything that we do. And while it could be said, I think of many of the early New Testament churches that, that they held this truth near and dear. There's probably no church like the church at Thessalonica that so fully embodied the embrace of this truth. Everything Paul writes to them is touched by this reality that Christ is coming soon. If we believe that, that'll change the way we live. I made the statement last week that I think it's probably the great distinguishing reality or truth between the early New Testament church and the churches we see her today in lethargy and apathy and, and apostasy. They really believed Jesus was coming back. And that changed the way they lived. It changed the way they served God. It changed the way they reached out and touched the world around them. Now, somebody's going to say, okay, preacher, I see that, uh, in, you know, I, overall in the book of First Thessalonians, but I don't see it in the passage we've read. Paul hasn't really said anything about the second coming. He's been talking about what God has done in the church at, at Thessalonica. He's been talking about how he and, and uh, Silas and Timothy have labored in that place and invested in them. But we'll find when we come to the close of this chapter that indeed all of the things Paul has been talking about have been informed by that reality. Look with me down at verses 19 and 20. We'll read these very quickly and then jump into the exposition of the text. Paul's been describing all of the labor, all of the time, all the work and effort that they've invested into the church at Thessalonica. Why is he talking about that? Well, in verse 19, he says this, For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For ye are our glory and joy. In other words, Paul says the reason we've been doing all of these things is because we believe Jesus is coming soon. We don't want to stand empty-handed when He appears. We don't want to be there with nothing to show for the life that He has entrusted us with as stewards of the grace of God. So we have labored abundantly amongst you and others that we might stand before Him rejoicing, uh, exceeding glad at what God has done through our lives and in the lives of others. So even in this passage, though it doesn't, it sort of sneaks in right there at the end, we find that it is really the motivating factor for all the things that Paul has detailed throughout this chapter. It's with that in mind that we've titled the lesson tonight, The Lord's Coming, A Stimulating Truth. In other words, it prompts us. It energizes us for the work of God. So when we begin to sort of deconstruct the text, what do we find? Well, we basically find five thoughts that Paul gives. And it begins in the first two verses when he recalls to them the totality of his commitment. He says, For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you, that it was not in vain. But even after that we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as you know, at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. Paul reminds them that their decision to come to Thessalonica was not something that was casual, flippant, or lightly considered, but that they had to literally crawl there over the opposition of Satan, over the persecution of evil men to get there to share the gospel with them. 
He describes being shamefully entreated, and I'll say a word about that here in a moment, but I would remind you in the history of Paul's first missionary journey, he has just left Philippi where he has been beaten, where he has been scourged, where he has been imprisoned. Uh, there in the jail in Philippi, you know the story in Acts chapter 16, how to him and Silas, they, they prayed and, and rejoiced and praised God at midnight, and God shook the jail and, and opened the, the chains, you know, the chains fell off, opened the doors and that they were led out of that city. It was from that very place, literally with his body still still bloody and bruised and beaten, that he walks from there to Thessalonica to share with them the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, you remember our coming in unto you. It was not something that was flippant. It was not something that was casual. And it was not something that was meaningless. Let me make this passing statement and I'll move on. Jesus is coming back soon. We better make sure our lives mean something. It ought to be that people can look at the way that we live and tell that we are not casual individuals. Now, I, listen, I, I'm not against enjoying life. You won't find anybody that uh, that probably lives on the, the side of levity more than I do. Uh, you know, I'm not against that. But I am saying this, we ought to live our, live our lives with such purpose and such passion that people look at our lives and can tell our life means something. It means something to God. It means something to us. And we're living it deliberately. He reminds them of His coming unto them, that it was not in vain. God did a great work there. And He reminds them of His condition. He says in verse number 2, even after that we had suffered before, He's talking about being beaten in Philippi, and were shamefully entreated, as you know, at Philippi. He reminds them that they had seen in His body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul was a man who lived with constant infirmity of the flesh. I mean, he had natural maladies, he had natural infirmity, and, and you know, scholars and commentators can argue about what that is. Most people believe it was a disease of the eyes that even in the early days when he was writing to the church at Galatia was afflicting him so much that he had to have someone else pin down that letter for him while he dictated it to them. But then also, uh, Paul, he had a lot of battle scars. He wore a, a lot of battle scars from serving the Lord Jesus Christ. On more than one occasion, he had been beaten. He had had stones hurled at him. He speaks of contending with wild beasts in the Colosseum at Ephesus. I mean, he was a rough character. You know, there's going to be times in your life if you're going to do something for Christ, you're going to have to grow a little bit of thick skin. You're going to have to get a little grit in your soul, a little determination in your heart and your mind. And you're going to have to recognize that there's going to be times people aren't going to be all that happy about you sharing the gospel and standing up for Jesus Christ. Paul says, you saw it. You saw how we were treated. The word for shamefully entreated is the word hubrizo. And it means both to be insulted and to suffer bodily abuse. Paul and Silas had suffered both types of mistreatment at Philippi. Although they were Roman citizens and therefore exempt from being scourged, they accepted such treatment at the hands of the unjust magistrates, probably to protect young Timothy and to secure the future well-being of that infant church. The Philippian magistrates were horrified when they learned that the two people whom they had mistreated were Roman citizens. They were fearful of official reprisals from Rome should their outrageous behavior be reported. Presumably, and I think this is fascinating, presumably they consequently adopted a hands-off policy toward the Philippian church. It is not too much to say that the uh, church at Philippi's safety and security had very likely been bought at, at the price of the blood of the Apostle Paul because he was willing to be persecuted. In other words, if you're going to live for Jesus Christ, you're going to get treated all sorts of ways. 
And if your mentality as you go through life is, how dare you insult me? How dare you mistreat me? How dare you uh, abuse me? How dare you persecute me? I'm just going to tell you, it ain't going to be long. You're going to quit standing up for Christ. You have to recognize that you and I, we are bond slaves of Jesus Christ. And if they crucified Him, you better believe they're not going to handle us with kid gloves. He describes how they saw His body, the marks of the Lord Jesus uh, in His flesh. And then they saw His boldness. He said, after that, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. The word bold is used a number of times in the New Testament, always in connection with preaching the gospel. It's used of the boldness of Saul of Tarsus when he preached the gospel at Damascus right after his conversion. It's used of his equal boldness in disputing with the Hellenist Jews in Jerusalem. It's used to describe the boldness of Paul and Barnabas at the Poseidon Antioch uh, when realizing that the Jews were adamant in their rejection of Christ, they announced that henceforth they would go to the Gentiles. It's used of the boldness of the missionaries at Iconium when faced with the active animosity of the Jewish community, they settled down in the city for a long stay with total disregard of the opposition. It's used of the boldness with which Apollos preached the gospel to the Jews in the synagogue at Ephesus and of the boldness of Paul in the same city where for three months he disputed and persuaded in his efforts uh, to win Jews to Jesus. The word boldly includes the idea of speaking without reserve. Paul would never dream of diluting the message. His boldness was intellectual as well as physical. The word freely that's used here is used to describe the boldness, for example, with which Paul bore testimony before King Agrippa. He was unintimidated by the pomp and ceremony by which he was uh, surrounded. He was undeterred by his chains and his uncertain future. He was unperturbed by the scornful and slanderous outbursts of the Roman governor Festus. He boldly confronted the king with his own need of Christ. This boldness came from prayer as he reminded the Thessalonians we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God. You know, it's funny the things we'll be bold about. Social media has brought this to the very surface. It's amazing the idiotic things that we will be rude and unkind over. And yet how often we are unwilling to risk even the the slightest ghost of a hint of offending someone in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. Now, listen carefully to me. God doesn't call any of us to be ugly or caustic or rude. Not a single one of us. Uh, The Lord Jesus was a living embodiment of tact and kindness and gentleness when He dealt with those that were sincere in their interactions with Him. But I am merely saying this. The gospel of Christ, the preaching of the cross, it is an offense to them which perish. And you better get comfortable with the idea that though thankfully there will be many folks that in gladness receive what you have to say, there will be folks that are troubled and disturbed and offended at you sharing the gospel. After all, the very heart of the gospel is telling people you're a lost sinner in need of salvation. That's the reason the preaching of the cross is an offense to them which perish. It reminds them that they are a sinner and in the same breath tells them that there is a Savior. You can't have one without the other. And Paul says we have learned that we better get serious and get sober and get steadfast in sharing the gospel. And he says, when we came to you, we didn't water it down, we didn't dial it back, we didn't tone it down any. 
Instead, we just came and were bold to share with you what Christ could do in your life. And with that, they were bold to share with them the bankruptcy of the idolatry that they had been raised in, the the utter inability of their cultural religion to save them or satisfy them. He said, instead, we just showed up and told you the truth. You're lost on your way to hell, but God loves you. Christ died for you. You don't have to stay in that condition. You don't have to stay in your brokenness. If you'll turn to Christ from these idols, he'll save you and give you a new life in Christ Jesus. So here Paul talks about the totality of his commitment. Now down in verses 3 through 12, he speaks about the transparency of his conduct. And this speaks to the type of life you and I are going to have to live in front of a lost world. In verses 3 through 4, we first see Paul's claim. He says, for our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak. Not as pleasing men, but God, which trieth our hearts. That's a pretty bold statement. Paul's saying, we know how we lived in front of you. And though uh, undoubtedly there were people that slandered Paul and lied about Paul, Paul could say, in the eyes of God, we know that we did our dead level best to live righteously in front of you. He basically makes two claims here. One, he describes how his integrity was undoubted. He talks about them knowing and God knowing and it being something that is not in dispute. He he talks about the truth being displayed in their life. He says our exhortation, in other words, our our challenge unto you, our our message unto you was not of deceit nor of uncleanness nor in God. It is probably impossible to understate the importance of clean living in sharing the gospel. Now, it's not to suggest that clean living is something that displaces the sharing of the gospel. Uh, if, if living morally was enough, then Christ wouldn't have died on the cross of Calvary. He wouldn't have given us a gospel to share and a Bible to preach. He would have just came, lived a perfect life, went to heaven and said, now do that. So, lifestyle evangelism, or the idea of clean living as displacing the gospel, has no biblical footing. Amen. By the same token... The idea of communicating the gospel completely divorced from any personal responsibility to live righteously in front of the world likewise has no biblical footing. And Paul says, we were careful how we lived in front of you because we knew you were watching us. He described this truth being on display before them and says that they were free from anything deceitful. Our exhortation was not of deceit. And let me tell you, Christians sharing the gospel, you better have a high regard for the truth. What does it suggest when we look at a lost person and say, truth is all that matters, and I'm here to share with you the truth of the gospel that can change your life, and then in the rest of our interactions we play fast and loose with the truth? What does that say to them? We're willing to bend the truth to tell what the world calls white lies. Uh, by the way, those white lies, Christ died for those too. Amen. They put Christ on the cross just like the dark lies. Uh, what does that suggest? to them. Paul says, we knew that it would have hamstringed our ability to share the truth with you if we had been found to be liars. Then he says, free from anything defiling. He says, nor of uncleanness. What would it say if they were to look at these lost idolaters, these pagans, and say, we can free you from this wickedness, and then for them to turn around and live in wickedness just the same. And then free from anything doubtful. He says, nor in guile. Now, guile has to do with, with, it is deception, but it's more manipulation than it is deception. It's not just deceiving for the sake of my benefit, but it is manipulating a person. 
Uh, and he says, we were careful that in our interactions with you, we didn't give you answers to try to elicit some kind of response. We were just truthful with you. We didn't try to word things in such a way to deceive you or to coerce you. We instead just told you the truth about how Jesus Christ did. Paul says this was paramount to our success at Thessalonica, that we lived the truth in front of you. I wanted to share this uh, with you from a commentary that I read, and, and I could have tried to just quote it, but to be honest, most of it's before my time. Uh, it's not before some of y'all's time, but we won't get into that. But I, So I wanted to just read it to you because it makes a very apt truth concerning this. In the 1960s, the United States and many other Western countries were inundated by social upheaval, religious apostasy, and cultural decay. Rock and roll became the drumbeat of a new age. Flower power was the end thing. The counterculture spawned a generation of hippies dedicated to drugs, dirt, and decadence. Countless thousands of young people dropped out of society, thumbed their nose at their parents, and plunged into a weird world of religion, rock, and revolution. They shoved aside all of society's norms. People from both the slums and the suburbs plunged into an exotic world of lust and lawlessness. The major driving force behind the abandonment of morality, decency, and religious sanity came from the new rock and roll music world. Another strong allure came from Hinduism, imported into the United States and elsewhere by an obscure Hindu guru named, and man, I'm going to mess this up. Some of y'all probably know it. Uh, A.C. Bhaktivedanta, oh, boy, that was rough, wasn't it? Swami Prabhupada. Uh, some of y'all know that name. You can tell me how to pronounce later. His total capital when he arrived in New York City was in 1965 was $7. But the assets of his weird religious cult upon his death in 1977 were fabulous. The Hare Krishna movement that he founded owned more than 200 temples and farms in 60 countries. It commanded millions of dollars. Its devotees and adherents were numbered in the tens of thousands. The god that the gurus proclaimed was the Hindu Krishna, a handsome flute-playing little boy in blue, supposed to be the omnipotent, omnipresent god of the universe, a quote-unquote god who was also very fond of stealing butter and hanging around with beautiful women. He wore flowers and feathers and went barefoot. This form of quote-unquote worship to which the bright-eyed dupes were introduced was purely and simply idolatrous. They groveled before graven images. They were called upon to render abject submission to gurus. They engaged in endless and mindless chanting and repetition of hypnotic religious formulas. Every morning the idols were dusted and washed in a holy brew of milk, rose water, and cow's urine. When these ablutions were finished, the devotees drank the rest. The idols were then arrayed in lavish robes and offered food. Vegetarianism, a common mark of all demonic cults, was required of all devotees. The man who imported this brand of Hinduism into the West had once been an Indian businessman, husband and father. His devotion to Krishna became an obsession. He became so busy chanting and studying that he neglected his business to the point that it failed. His wife was driven to steal one of his religious books and sell it to buy something to eat. Her husband simply abandoned her, walked out never to return to become a holy man. His idea of holiness was to chant repeatedly, 64 rounds of it every day, the hypnotic religious formula that he taught to his father, the followers, and that so captivated the Beatles that they turned it into a best-selling record. As he chanted, he counted the repetitions on his Japamala beads, the Hare Krishna Rosner. Uh, this stern religious ascetic introduced this Hindu cult to the disillusioned dropouts of Western society. 
The Western gurus whom he appointed picked up the formulas, made converts, ripped off a gullible public, and wedded Hinduism to drugs, sex, and crime. The full story has been told in a book titled Monkey on a Stick, written by a couple of newspaper reporters, both of whom have covered the Hare Krishna movement and done painstaking research into its sordid underworld. They have revealed a world of child abuse, sadistic torture, prostitution, drug peddling, arson, gun running, and murder. It's a story of, quote, faith and betrayal, money and power, murder and madness. No religion can rise higher than its source. Sadly, Christianity has often been corrupted in its stream, but Hinduism is corrupted at its fountainhead. The man who introduced Hare Krishna to the West was a severe, cold, and calculating ascetic who was able to will power over those who were deluded by his outward robe of Olympian calm. He brought his followers to a polluted stream and made them drink. He was not above using worldly means to achieve his purpose, the introduction of his followers to religious, mental, and moral slavery. The Thessalonians were all too familiar with such religious gurus. The world of their day was full of them. Paul himself had encountered them. The message that he preached was different. It was not one of asceticism. It was not one that condoned sin. It did not in introduce people to a lustful God. Paul preached to one who is, uh, Paul preached to people one who is mighty to save and able to cleanse, regenerate, and fill people with the Holy Spirit. The Christ whom Paul preached is able to transform our lives, to make drunken men sober, profligate women pure, crooked men straight, and bad people good. And you may say, preacher, why'd you take the time to read all that? Well, twofold. One, because that same sort of Eastern mysticism is infecting much modern-day contemporary Christianity. I, I won't go into all the details, but if you want to Google contemplative prayer sometime and look at what goes on at these big contemporary music festivals, it is note for note, I I'm talking about word for word, exactly what this Hinduist uh, poison was in the 1960s. But there's a second reason that I mention that. Because though it may not take those outward trappings, the world today is full of all sorts of self-help gurus preaching all sorts of false gospels around. You know the only difference is, just as the commentator said here, they're leading them to a polluted fountain and causing them to drink. They're leading them to a place that, that can't even save the gurus that preach it. And because of that, people soon grow disillusioned with it. When was the last time you met a follower of Hare Krishna? You know why? Eventually people wised up. They looked around and said, you know, there's no truth to this. If there was truth to this, these people wouldn't be pedophiles and, and womanizers and drug addicts and all these things. If the God they preached could save them, it would have saved them first. Let that never be said about Bible Christianity. The people look at us and say... Well, why, if God can save sinners, hasn't He changed their life as well? He talks about the truth displayed in His life. Number two, He talks about the truth being declared. He said, as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel. He describes the gospel as being a sacred trust. The word for allowed here, it simply means to be approved or tested. In other words, he's saying God looked at us and said, because you're willing to walk obediently, I will enlarge your ministry and I will give you a voice and give you an opportunity to share the gospel. And now I am entrusting you with this. You are a steward of the gospel of the grace of God. Uh, every one of us that has been saved by God's grace has been entrusted with that gospel. And then a proportional influence sphere of opportunity around us. We want that to grow, then we have to be obedient 
in what God has allowed us to have already. Uh, my pastor used to always say this, if you want a bigger room, start by sweeping your own corner. In other words, if we'll be obedient in sharing the gospel, not because we view it as being something that wins friends and influences people, but rather because we have been entrusted it by God, then God will then enlarge that opportunity. Now, somebody's going to say, well, preacher, I'd love to do that, but I can't do that. Well, listen how Paul described it. He described it as a simple task. He said, even so, we speak. He didn't say we perform miracles. He didn't say we build great, vast, multinational, global ministries. He said we just speak. We take what we know to be true, and we speak it and share it with other people. I'm going to give a shameless plug right now for our Track Today Challenge we're doing in our church. We just started it. Uh, I guess it technically starts in a day or two, first of October, but we gave up little packets last night. And part of the reason we do that, you know, anytime you want a gospel track to give somebody, we'll give you one. If you want a stack of them, we'll give you a stack of any time that you want. So why do we go about doing it the way that we're doing it? We're trying to show people how simple it is to make a meaningful impact in sharing the gospel. That if you just commit to just find one person a day that'll take that track from you and do that every day of your life, in your life, every year, you'll witness to hundreds of people. And the very people that I think benefit from it most are the very people that say, Preacher, I could never do that. I could never do that. Paul said it's a simple task. We take the truth of God and speak it to those that are in need. So he describes to them how that his integrity was undoubted amongst them. And then he describes how his integrity was undaunted at the end of verse 4. He says, not as pleasing men, but God, which trieth our hearts. Paul's testimony to the Thessalonians was that when he preached in their city, he was not concerned whether his message pleased men. His preaching was such as could stand the test of God's examination. His recent experience at Philippi might well have so frightened him that at Thessalonica he would try not to upset anyone. Compromise, so beloved by the politician, though, has no part in the gospel. The gospel is not presented to us in the New Testament in accommodating shades of gray. It's presented in stark black and white. People are either saved or they're lost. We're either going to heaven or we're going to hell. Something is either true or it's false, right or wrong, of the flesh or of the spirit, good or bad. Jesus is the way, not just a way. The gospel is concerned with truth. Anything that contradicts the gospel is a lie. Paul says we, in preaching, we didn't try to mitigate or temper or change or tailor our message because we knew that one day we're going to have to answer to God for how genuinely and truthfully we shared with you the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we see here Paul's claim, and then we see Paul's conduct. Uh, in verse number 5 and 6, he says, For neither at any time use we flattering words, as ye know, nor a cloak of covetousness. God is witness. Nor of men sought we glory, neither of you, nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children, so being affectionately desirous of you. We were willing to have imparted unto you, not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because you were dear unto us. He describes basically two things. One, he describes what he shunned. He shunned all guile. He said we didn't use flattering words. Uh, we didn't say things to you to try to manipulate a response out of you or try to flatter you or gain an entrance with you through lies or deceit. And then he says we shunned all gain. He says, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is with us. So what is covetousness? William Barclay defines it as the sin of the person who gives full play to lawless appetite, of the person who thinks that his desires, appetites, and lusts are the most important things in the world. 
The covetous person treats other people as though they were mere things to be exploited. Such a person has no God but himself and his desires. No wonder the Holy Spirit defines covetousness as idolatry in Colossians 3, 5. In other words, Paul says we didn't put anything above the work of God in our life. And we didn't view you as stepping stones to a greater opportunity for ourselves. So he says they shunned all guile and all gain. Then he says we shunned all glory. He says, nor of men sought we glory, neither of you, nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. Let me just say that one of the great things infecting modern Christianity, and when I, when I say modern Christianity, I don't just mean the contemporary crowd. I'm talking about the whole crowd, is glory-seeking from people that are purporting uh, to be the ministers of God. There's a lot of, there's a word I like to use for it, it's celebrity Christianity. It's built around a cult of personality and the worship and uplifting of these individuals. I'll be honest with you. There's certain people, there's certain preachers, if I said a true critical thing about them, I'd have church members wouldn't speak to me. If I said a true critical thing about them, I'd have folks who wouldn't answer my phone calls and wouldn't answer my texts back. I'm not talking about a false thing. I'm not talking about a lie. I'm not talking about a slander. I'm talking about people have their favorite preachers, TV preachers, great big name evangelists, whatever it is. And there has been this, this wedded obsession with them as individuals and personalities. Paul said, when we came amongst you, we didn't seek that. We didn't want you to look at us. We wanted you to look at Jesus Christ. Insomuch that Paul says any, anything that would have took attention away from, from Christ and put it on us, we shunned that. We pushed it away. We actively avoided. It's part of the reason, by the way, there seems to be this obsession with superstar evangelists in this respect. I have a basic rule of thumb. I only have preachers come preach at our church that are better than me, all right? Uh, because I want you to show up for revival. Uh, so, but in, in the sort of superstar evangelist realm, there is this sort of, of obsession with these guys. And a lot of the reason is because they're not pastoring anyone. They have no more interaction with people than the 35 minutes that they're standing in the pulpit. People never see their faults, their flaws, their failures. One of the things that grounds a person's relationship to their pastor is you spend enough time around him to see that he's human. That he's not some kind of spiritual superstar, but that he was a broken sinner, saved by the grace of God, transformed by the love of Christ, that's trying to live for the Lord and serve God right along beside you. Paul said, our time spent with you showed you that we were not interested in exalting ourselves. Then he talked about what he showed. He says in verse 7, we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children, being affectionately, he says, so being affectionately desirous of you. Far from having any desire to exploit his converts, Paul was gentle toward them, like a nurse cherishing her own children. The word for gentle here is the word epios, a word that the Greeks used to describe the kindness displayed by parents toward their children. The word for nurse is the word trophos. As it's used here, the word probably refers to the idea of a nursing mother and the children whom she cherishes as her own. The word for cherishing is the word thalpo, which means literally to warm, and it's used of a bird nesting its young beneath its feathers. The whole picture is one of tender, loving care, far from exploiting his converts, as is usually the case with the propagators of religious cults. Paul looked out for only the protection, development, nurture, and well-being of his converts. In other words, he had to show genuine love into their life, genuine concern in their life. There's going to be people you witness to and win for Christ that they're going to get up off their knees, thank the Lord for saving them, and that'll be the last time you ever see them. 
But the majority of people whom you have an open door of utterance with, you're probably going to have an ongoing relationship with them in their life. And they will notice whether or not you show love for them beyond just their profession of faith. Paul says, we invested the time. He showed love to them. Not only that, he showed his life to them. He says, we were willing to have imparted unto you, not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because you were dear unto us. That is how sincere that he was. He literally would have died for them. The word here rendered souls denotes life. A mother will defend her children to the doors of death itself. I thought this was interesting. Years ago, a missionary in Africa was walking down a forest path where some while before a fire uh, had blazed and burnt everything down. He saw beside the pathway the charred remains of a nest and a mother hen. Idly, he nudged aside the carcass, and to his astonishment, out from beneath the burned fragments ran some baby chicks. Mother's love had taught that hen to give her life for her brood. That was exactly how Paul was towards his babes in Christ. He would have given his life for them. The love of a mother hen toward her chicks, after all, is merely creature love. The love that Paul had for his converts was Calvary's love. The Thessalonians would have been forever in Paul's debt if he had just told them the gospel. But he did more. He was a living incarnation of the gospel that he preached. His love and his very life was theirs. He not only imparted the gospel of God to them, but also put his own life on the line because they were dear unto him. Now, not only what he showed, but notice what he shared. He says, For you remember, brethren, our labor and travail, for laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you, we preached unto you the gospel of God. He now reminds them of him and, and Silas and Timothy, their labor and travail. The word for labor is the word kopos, and, and it means to beat, as for instance, like the beating of the chest. It suggests the weariness of laborious toil. It suggests work that results in weariness. The word for travail is the word makthos, and it carries the idea of painful effort and tiring labor. The root word suggests difficulty. Taken together, the words make clear that the missionaries had worked hard. They had not just done token work. They went to bed tired when they went to bed at all. Paul says that they labored night and day. Paul had no use for laziness in the Lord's work. And I'll just tell you this, reaching sinners is hard work. Sharing the gospel, just giving of a gospel tract, uh, that can be done easily and in passing. Or even having a conversation. While there's a certain measure of emotional and intellectual investment that goes into it, that conversation that might last 20 or 30 minutes, uh, that's something that's probably not going to leave you exhausted. But the pouring of your life into theirs, the helping them, the phone calls, the time spent counseling them, investing in their life. It's hard work. And Paul says, you remember that we weren't lazy in this, but we made ourselves available and we poured our lives into them. So not only does he describe his commitment and his conduct, but he describes his conscience. Uh, he says in verse number 10, ye are witnesses in God also, how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe. I like the way that the notes put this. And the one he summons is witnesses. He says, you are witnesses and God also. There's coming a day that the way we've lived, we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and the witnesses are going to be called. God won't bring charges against us or, or even blessings to us without having evidence to present. And the witnesses will be there and God himself will be there. God's watching how we're living. The people around us are watching. 
But also he searches out his works. He says how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe. Paul and his companions behaved holily. The word used means to be pure from all crime, religiously observant of every duty, careful to fulfill every obligation. Uh, probably uh, circumspect uh, would be a word that's very descriptive of that idea. They, they crossed T's, they dotted I's, they watched how they lived. Particularly the word has to do with the discharge of one's duties toward God. The word justly carries the idea of straight dealing. has to do with the careful discharge of our duties to men. Paul states the idea of unimpeachable conduct positively, holily and justly, and then he states it negatively. He says unblameably. The word is an ameptos, and they were faultless is what it means. Nothing could be said against them. If someone were to bring a charge against the missionaries, the allegation would never get off the ground. The entire body of believers would testify to their blameless conduct. Now listen, none of us are perfect. And you don't have to be a perfect person to share the gospel or to invest in the lives of others, but you do have to be an honest person. When you make mistakes, go to people, ask their forgiveness, clear the air, get things settled, move forward in your relationship with them. Don't conceal things, don't hide things, because uh, those things have a way of finding themselves out. Then he describes his concern. He says, as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father doth his children, that you would walk worthy of God who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. Paul was not content simply to win people to Christ. He recognized his responsibility to these newborn babes in Christ at Thessalonica. As short as had been his stay at Thessalonica, as hard as he had been called upon to work, as zealous as he had been in preaching the gospel in the street and synagogue, and as severe as had been the obstacles that his enemies put in his way, he had found time to lay a firm foundation for their faith in each person whom he had led to Christ. He describes it this way. He had exhorted them. Uh, this word means to call aside and to appeal to. Uh, the ideas of exhortation, entreaty, and instruction are all incorporated in this word. Then he says he comforted his Thessalonian converts. Uh, they had been called upon very early in their Christian experience to face persecution, active dislike, and open hostility. The word comfort means to speak tenderly to them. And the word for charge means to testify or to bear witness. Paul could talk to his converts out of his own knowledge and his rich, varied, and personal experience. A conscientious father, this is the image, will take his children aside to encourage them, instruct them, console them, and point out to them the good and right way. You know, when I think back... There's basically two memories I have of my father growing up. And I'm not saying only two memories, but two types of memories. Hank Williams one time said he had only written two songs, a slow one and a fast one. All right? Well, I only have two memories really of my dad. Him whipping me and him encouraging me. Uh, rarely did they overlap. Amen? You all right tonight? You with me? I remember the whippings I got, and uh, that means they work. Amen. You're supposed to be able to remember them. I still, when I hear a belt slide out of, of belt loops, I still get a shiver down my spine. But then I remember the moments when my father would pull me aside and instruct me, show me how to do something, encourage me. I very vividly remember conversations that I had as a, as a young man where dad gave me real truth, real instruction, took the time to invest in my life. Paul said, that's what I did with the Thessalonians. I, 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 Thessalonians, I took time to pull them aside. I paid attention to what was going on in their life, and I took time to individually instruct them and encourage them and shore up their faith. He talks about his concern, that it was a fatherly concern, and then that it was a fundamental concern. He says, this is why I did that, that you would walk worthy of God, who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. 
He says, I took that time, I poured that effort into their life so that they would walk worthy of God. He says, I, it wasn't an incidental thing, and it wasn't just, you know, an occidental thing. He says, I, I took time because it was vital to what God desired to do in their life. Let me just say that I remember a pastor used this phrase with me one time, told me this, shared this with me. He's talking about discipleship. And um, when we talk about discipleship, people think of special classes in churches, special courses to go through, special material. But when you look at the way that the Lord Jesus discipled his disciples, there's a word that I think describes it, and it's the word witness. He was with them. He spent time with them. I'm not against a discipleship class or a booklet or a course or any of those things. I think it's a great way to teach people what baptism means and why they need to be a church member. But if we really want to see people develop into becoming followers of Jesus Christ, it's going to take spending time with them. It's going to take showing them by our example and by our exhortation what it means to be a Christian. So we've made it through those first 12 verses. You didn't think we would, but we did. So let's read those last few and we'll finish up this chapter. In verse number 13, Paul says this, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which ye heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us. And they please not God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved, to fill up their sins always. For the wrath is come upon them to the uttermost. But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. Wherefore we would have come unto you, wherefore we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? For ye are our glory and joy. In these verses, Paul begins by describing the triumph of his converts. He says, we remember what God did in your life and we're still thanking God for the work that he's done in you. He describes, number one, how they received the truth in all of its divine actuality. He said, when you receive the word of God, which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. When Paul preached, the Thessalonians recognized the voice of authority with which he spoke. They heard, recognized, and believed the word of God. They recognized it in all of its actuality. It actually is the word of God. They received it as such without question. Nobody had ever spoken to them like that. They had heard the priests of the various pagan religions. They had heard the oracles speak in tongues with the voice of demons. They had heard the rabbis. But Paul, like Jesus, spoke with authority and not as the scribes. When he spoke, they heard, recognized, and understood for the first time in their lives the Spirit-inspired, God-breathed Word. So, preacher, what application would you make in that for our lives? This very simply... That's why it's so important that what we're sharing with people be the Word of God. Paul, being an apostle, living in that day and being sanctioned of God to uh, be a penman for Scripture, it could be said literally that when he preached this truth to them, spoke this truth to them, and certainly with the letter they're holding in their hand, he was speaking the Word of God. You and I, we don't speak the Word of God except we take the Word of God and speak it into the lives of others. 
But that's why it's so paramount that what we're saying and teaching people be biblical. Because only the Word of God has authority. Not your opinion, not my opinion, only the Word of God. They'd received it in all divine actuality. But not only that, they'd received it in divine activity. It says, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. That's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. The expression effectually worketh, it means to be made energetic. In other words, the Word of God is a power in the lives of those that believe. The words are in the present continuous sense. What they had heard was alive. It was living seed. It worked away in the believer's life, affecting a change of character. The Spirit of God energizes the Word of God and so transforms the child of God. God's Word is a hammer to devour, a fire to burn, a mirror to reveal, a light to dispel darkness, and a sword to pierce the foe. There is wonder-working power in the Word of God. In the early dawn of time, God had only to say, let there be light, and light was. Such is the power of God's Word. He had only to speak, and a hundred billion galaxies sprang into being. He had only to speak, and life arose and multiplied itself in a billion forms. He had only to speak, and the seas swarmed with life, and the hills clothed themselves with meadows and forests. When the Word was made flesh, one word from Him, and demons fled, leprosy vanished, and the dead rose. That is the energia of His Word. All of that omnipotent power resides in His written Word, like the explosive force that lies in a stick of dynamite. The word that is given as worketh here is nearly always used in the New Testament to denote some form of supernatural activity. Usually it denotes divine activity. It's used to describe the activity of faith and the effectiveness of prayer, uh, the activity of death and life in our souls as well. Here, Paul emphasizes to the Thessalonians that their transformed lives were the result of divine power, the power latent within the Word of God and not the result of any power this world might offer. He describes how they received the truth and then how they retained the truth. He says, For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews. The transforming power of the Word of God in the lives of the believers made them some natural enemies. But it also enabled them to face the bitter hostility that arose around them. The persecutions of the Thessalonian Christians was originally instigated by the Jews. When Timothy came back from Thessalonica with up-to-date news of what was happening there, he also must have brought with him news that the persecution of the church was continuing, and now it was the Gentiles themselves who were harassing the church. In other words, they held on to the truth, and it held on to them. It buoyed them through in the face of severe opposition. Paul goes on to sort of detail this opposition, uh, and he also gives us a glimpse into some dispensational realities concerning Israel as a nation. Uh, it's under the header, the tragedy of Paul's countrymen. The mention of persecution and the remembrance of how that persecution first took such firm and virile root in Jerusalem turns Paul's thoughts for a moment to the tragedy of the Jewish people. Their bitter hostility to Christ and Christianity never ceased to amaze him, although he himself had been one of the most zealous Jewish opponents of the gospel years earlier. Paul discusses the theological implications of all this in Romans 9-11. through Here, however, he just mentions it in passing as he thinks about the sadness of it all. Briefly, he reviews the persistent opposition to the gospel by the Jews. And I'm just going to read through this quick. It's almost a catalog of the sad history of Israel from the crucifixion from Calvary, uh, even to our own day and looking forward into the future. He describes their provocation that the Jews who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets 
and have persecuted us. No charge could be more terrible. They killed the Lord Jesus. This is the only place where Paul expressly charges the Jews with the murder of their Messiah. They whipped up the mob. They chose Barabbas over Jesus when, he, when the frustrated Pilate had offered them a choice. They had gathered around the cross to mock him as he died. They had killed the Lord Jesus, the Son of the living God. God manifests in the flesh. No crime could be greater than that. He then describes their presumption, he says, and they please not God. So the Jews provoked God, yet they still prided themselves to be true children of Abraham and God's chosen people, which brings Paul to their presumption, they please not God. For nearly 2,000 years since the murder of their Messiah, the Jews have persisted in their unbelief. When the Romans under Vespasian and Titus destroyed Jerusalem and the temple, the Jews took that in stride. They took refuge in rabbinical Judaism and in the burgeoning Talmud. Down through the centuries, they have become bitter and intolerant in their opposition to Christianity and their rejection of Christ. The concrete of unbelief that the first century rabbis poured over the nation has now set hard into a fixed attitude of unbelief. They blame Gentile anti-Semitism, but God recognizes no such excuse, although he judges the nations that foster. They please not God, says Paul, himself once a trained rabbi and bitterly hostile to Christ. God is not pleased with the Judaism that rejects Christ. He is not pleased with Gentile unbelief either. The Jews remain the object both of his love and pity and of his displeasure. They were the ones who, in the face of unique privilege, spat in the face of Jesus, moved heaven and earth to get him crucified, delighted in his sufferings, urged Pilate to seal his tomb, invented a falsehood to explain away his resurrection, rejected the Holy Spirit, thrashed the apostles, applauded Herod for murdering James, hired Saul of Tarsus to stamp out Christianity, martyred Stephen, threw Paul out of every synagogue he entered, hounded him to his death, and invented the Talmud to replace the Torah. They frequently blaspheme the name of Jesus in their writings, and by and large, they stubbornly resist all efforts to win them to Christ. They please not God, Paul says. He describes them their perversity. He says they are contrary to all, all men. The word for contrary is anantios, means antagonistic. God called the Hebrew people apart from the rest of the world for himself. His plan was to reveal himself to them, redeem them, reign over them, and make them a model of his goodness, greatness, glory, and grace. He set them in the midst of the nations, in a land where three continents, Europe, Africa, and Asia, meet astride the busy highways of the Gentile world. The nations of the world would come into contact with the nation of Israel, and they would be blessed. But they failed. First Israel, then Judah, plunged into an apostasy and idolatry, worse than that of the surrounding nations. They became besotted with the vile and vicious gods of the pagans. The Babylonian captivity cured them of that, but they returned to the promised land to develop a spirit of sanctimonious superiority, exclusiveness, and bitter dislike of the Gentiles. The more the rabbinic form of Judaism took hold, the more intolerant the Jews became of the Gentiles. Their synagogues scattered throughout the world fostered their contrariness toward the Gentiles. They despised the Gentiles' idolatry, shuddered at the thought of entering a Gentile home and eating Gentile food, and considered their touch a contamination. They called them dogs and regarded them as unclean as wild animals. No wonder Gentiles worldwide have turned on them and persecuted them age after age and country after country. To this day, anti-Semitism is endemic in all Gentile societies. From time to time, it becomes epidemic and gives rise to open persecution. One day, when the Antichrist comes, anti-Semitism will become pandemic and persecution will become global. Then he describes their prejudice. says, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved to fill up their sins always. 
The Jews did not want the gospel themselves, a fact that they had made very obvious. But neither did they want the Gentiles to have it. They obstructed the gospel at Poseidon in Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra on Paul's first missionary journey. They hindered him at Berea, at Thessalonica, and at Corinth on his second missionary journey. They constituted themselves his bitterest enemies and hounded him to imprisonment and death. They did not want Gentiles to be saved. They did everything in their power to prevent Paul from evangelizing them. Paul uses this phrase to fill up their sins always. And he uses it to explain why judgment had not yet fallen on them for their stubborn wickedness. You know, God permits men to pursue their wicked ways for a long time before he acts in judgment. He is patient. He gives time for repentance. He waited for many centuries before sending the judgment of the flood. He withheld his hand for 400 years in the case of the Amorites. By the time the judgment does fall upon a nation, it is often obvious even to men that it is long overdue and that it is just and well-deserved. In Paul's day, God was still waiting patiently for the Jews to fill up the measure of their sins. The Jews of the homeland had already gone almost to the limit. They'd not yet added to their sins the arrest and attempted murder of Paul, but they were well on the way. The Jews of the dispersion were also well advanced in their rejection of Christ, but as yet they had not poured the final load of Talmudic concrete over their Christ rejection. That would not happen until after the fall of Jerusalem. So God waited and held his hand and the Jews, secure in their fantasy that because they were God's chosen people, they were safe from wrath, persisted in their supreme sin of rejecting Christ. Then he describes their punishment. He says, for the wrath is come upon them to the uttermost. The question arises as to how and in what sense the wrath is come to the uttermost upon the Jews. God's wrath had already overtaken them, but its execution was still pending at the time that Paul wrote this. Time, though, was running out. The full measure of their sins was already counted in heaven. Paul was so sure that the Jews were under God's judgment that he used the aortist tense. It can be rendered came upon them. In other words, it is already there. It is pounced upon them. The certainty of their punishment was such that the prophetic past could be used to describe it. The wrath of God upon unrepentant Israel embraces past, present, and future. The background is that terrible catalog of curses that were so very much a part of the Palestinian covenant in Deuteronomy 28. The long centuries of their dispersion have been full of peril for the Jews. In various lands of their exile, they have suffered discrimination, segregation, persecution, and expulsion. The very expression wandering Jew became proverbial. They've been regarded as Shylocks, blamed for the ills of the world, accused of horrible atrocities, held responsible for the black death, and made the scapegoats for every failed enterprise. His blood be upon us and on our children, they said to Pilate when they clamored for the crucifixion of Christ, and it most certainly has been. Their history shows how tragically and terribly their self-imposed curse has haunted them, and the end is not yet because the wrath is by no means over. The Jews have not yet repented nationally for the crime of Calvary, so the time of Jacob's trouble, described in Jeremiah 37, awaits them. The terrible time that Jesus himself calls the Great Tribulation in Matthew 27, 25. One of these days the Jews will sign a seven-year treaty with the Antichrist. The Bible in Isaiah 28 calls it a covenant with death and with hell. Halfway through the period of the treaty, the Antichrist will break it, seize the rebuilt Jewish temple in Jerusalem, defile it, and launch a global onslaught against the Jews. It will be a holocaust unparalleled in all of their long and tragic history. All of this is bound up in this statement here concerning the wrath of God. It will have its climax in the coming universal day of God's wrath. Now, we're over time. I'm going to cut short because... I make promises to you. But if, if you want, we'll finish up next week and catch up a little bit on those last few verses there. I thought we was going to make it. You was right. 
I was wrong. We didn't make it. So I'm already five minutes over. Let's go ahead and close. I don't want to rush those last few verses. We'll, we'll get into those next week.